This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. It's episode 261 of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. For this Tuesday episode, we've got a panel discussion uh, on a pretty interesting and unique subject in the world of beer hop breeding. Uh, we're here in Yakima, and we are sitting at Peralt Farms up in a, a conference room right next to the baling floor with mountains and mountains of hops being uh, uh, processed and baled right now because we are in the middle of harvest. Joining me for this conversation are the two hop breeders for the Hop Breeding Corporation, Jason Peralt and Michael Ferguson. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Thanks. Jamie. We're going to talk about all the intricacies of hop breeding. Uh, you know, it was, it's interesting being out here because breeding is a specific subset of hop growing. Uh, it's a, a process of trying to develop new new varieties and uh, uh, with improved agronomics and, of course, all the things that brewers love about hops, uh, aroma, flavor, etc. Um, you know, but you're building hops that work both for the brewer's side and for the growers' side and fit those kind of agronomic needs of the industry in terms of yield and disease resistance and all of the kind of mechanics that make the crops work also in addition to all those nice uh, flavors and aromas that brewers want. We're going to talk about how you do that because it's a crazy process and a very involved process and a, a very uh, – uh, there's a lot that goes into it, a huge uh, funnel of uh, process to get down to – uh, what actually get released as finished hot new hop varieties. And we're going to talk all through that. But first, AccuBrew is an analytical tool designed to collect and compare the information brewers need to produce consistent results and continuously improve the process of fermentation. AccuBrew is more than a progress bar and early warning system. It's an ever-evolving piece of technology tailored to you and your process. Save time and turn takes faster Monitor and compare batch progress in real time. Enter notes, set custom reminders and temperature alerts, and detect process issues before a batch is ruined. Quality, consistency, and confidence, that's what AccuBrew delivers. Visit AccuBrew.io today for a no-obligation 90-day trial. This episode is also brought to you by BSG, who invites you to get funky with Fermentus Safe Brew BR8 the first dry Britannomyces bruxellensis culture available to brewers. BR8 offers the distinct flavor of Brett Brux, combined with a shelf stability and consistency of dry yeast. BR8 delivers fruity notes early on, but with aging, the base starts to slap as BR8 brings the funk. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. Jason, why don't we start with you? Why don't you give us some background on uh, Hop Breeding Corporation what it is, what the relationship is, because you all also are on different farms, but this is a collaborative effort through HBC uh, to develop new hops for the hop industry. Explain some of that and then explain some of your background, and then we'll, we'll talk to you about yours too, Michael. Okay. Yeah, in simplest terms, uh, Hop Breeding Company is a joint venture 50-50 between John I. Haas and Yakima Chief Ranches. Um, so for all intents and purposes, it, it is a single breeding program. Uh, but we've kept it simple and, and ran uh, the two companies, uh, I guess backing up a little bit, the two companies had individual breeding programs prior to the formation. And we've, we've been able to maintain the integrity of those programs while combining resources and becoming more efficient. 
uh, combining germplasm uh, to expand our, our gene pool. So it's been a, a very effective uh, combination. Um, and that was formed uh, back in, I think, uh, around 2002 um, was the, the official coming together. Um, and so it's been uh, 20 years now since we've been, we've been operating together. So uh, it's been a great effort. Um, my role in all this was uh, started back as the breeder for Yakima Chief Ranches. Um, I took over that role from Chuck Zimmerman, um, very famous name in, in hop lore and, and, and breeding. Um, so uh, very honored to have worked with him. Um, and uh, going further back than that, I'm also a fourth generation hop grower. So my life's been pretty much spent in hops. Um, started working on the breeding side of things as a tech for Chuck back in high school. And it just kind of evolved from there um, and uh, stayed involved since. I know you're also CEO of Peralt Farms and, and run the family farm in addition to this piece too. Right, right. Uh, Michael, what's your background? Yeah, originally from Iowa. So I grew up on a corn, soybean, hog farm there. And that's, uh, I think my family's like fourth generation there back in Iowa. So, uh, yeah, I worked in uh, corn breeding and then moved to California soon after college and then started in strawberry breeding for 16 years with Driscoll's in Ventura County and did that for, yeah, 16 years. Then I moved up to here 2015. Uh, Gene Probasco, he's the the one and only breeder, I guess, Hawes had. Yeah. And so Gene retired in 2015 after, I think, 42 or five years of hot breeding. So I took over Gene's role for representing the hot breeding efforts of Hawes in HBC. Some big shoes to fill. <laughs> for sure. I mean, Gene was the guy that uh, the bred Citra, right? I mean, that's, uh, yeah. So it's quite a legacy right there. Talk to me about some of the, the hops that have come out of the Hop Breeding Corporation uh, development program over the, over the last few years, or at least the last 10 years. Uh, so you mentioned Citra. That was the first one. So at, after the formation of Hop Breeding Company um, in the early 2000s, the decision was made at that time that all varieties released um, would be released jointly through Hop Breeding Company. And, and actually, you know, back in that time, Gene and I worked on consolidating a lot of the the operations and even the flow through process of, of varieties that kind of facilitated that joint release then. Uh, as you mentioned though, uh, Gene had been working on Citra for some time. Um, I think he made that cross in 1992. And luckily, uh, he was interested in, I mean, the, the goal of that cross, as I recall, was, uh, was like a noble, more of a noble type. Uh, and in 92, like, nobody was really you know, that, that kind of flavor was not on most people's radar. Well, you know, you would, you would have made the cross in 92 and it would have went through the vetting process and you know, that, that would have taken say roughly a decade. So, you know, you're, you're, you're sitting there in the early two thousands. You had this, these, uh, this, this variety that had potential. Um, but that was a much different time in the industry as you're alluding to, you know, we didn't have, uh, to, to get a variety accepted by one of the major brewers was a very big deal. Uh, not easy to do. Uh, we didn't have the craft brewing base that we have now uh, that is much more uh, creative, much more experimental, willing to try and almost required to try new right, things on a regular right. basis to stay out in front of things. So uh, it was it was a bit of a challenge. And uh, so um, so we held on to Citra, knowing that it was something of interest and having a handful of brewers that were interested in, but it wasn't really until, you know, things started to take off on the IPA side of things and, and other similar 
uh, beers that uh, it really took a foothold. So that was, uh, we didn't have that first release ready until 2008. And, uh, and then after that, uh, the next one was Mosaic. Um, and that was in 2011, 2012, right around that time frame. And uh, I think that's the one variety. Um, if you look across successful varieties in the industry right now, I think that's the one variety that found success after, you know, we always quote this timeline, uh, you know, a decade or so of development. Um, and then you release and you go into this commercial. So in a perfect world, you got 10 years of development and you release it and, you know, yay, you got a new variety and it's out there and it does great. But in reality, you know, you look at something like Cascade where the cross was made in 1956, didn't really see any success until the 1970s. And then it had multiple lives throughout the decades of, of you know, success and then backing off success and backing off. Um, Citra, as we already mentioned, cross made in the early 90s, didn't find success until, you know, 2008. Um, Simcoe, same thing. You know, Gene, or I mean, uh, uh, Chuck made that cross, similar time frame as the, the Citra cross. Didn't see success with that until, you know, the, the 2000s. So, um, Mosaic, you guys are operating like, uh, like whiskey distillers, you know, where, <laughs> you know, everyone's like, oh, they should just, you know, produce more bourbon right now because the demand is so high. But all of the bourbon makers are like, we're not thinking about right now. We're thinking about 10 years from now because that's the time frame. If we put it in, it's got, you know, we the demand has to be there 10 years from now. And, you know, you, you, so predicting what that's going to be, predicting what the, the beer world is going to look like 10 years from now, uh, you know, that takes a little bit of prognostication on your part. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, we don't we don't always, don't always know what that's going to be. So every variety, as you kind of alluded to earlier, has a value proposition. And it's got to be first and foremost on the agronomics. If it doesn't work there, then it's not going to work at all. Uh, but then it's also got to have the value proposition on the brewing side and whatever that may be. And not every variety in, 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 you know, in this point in time is going to have a good value proposition for the brewers necessarily. And it might take time for that to develop. So, um, I think that's kind of, you know, like I said, that, uh, a mosaic was the one example, I think, and it was because of its time and place, you know, it was released at a time when, when, uh, uh, you had varieties like Simcoe, like Citra, uh, like Amarillo kind of set in that stage. And so it fell into place very easily. But beyond that, I don't, I, I don't see that as being, uh, that's, that's less common, you know, that, than, uh, that's not the norm for sure. Wouldn't you, you agree? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it takes time to get acquainted to a new crop. So I'm, I think I'm t- after seven years, you know, getting a little handle on things. <laughs> seven, seven years now you're getting up to speed. Yeah. I mean, on any crop, sure. any crop, I mean, you have to spend two or three years just to get to feel how the the actual species grows even for even if you're experienced in plants right and you know i think the humbling thing in hops has been mostly is just that i'd say the develop the market development time is as longer longer than the actual breeding process and i think for me that's just learning the brewing industry is that hey like we've been showing things since i first came on six years ago that the brewers were excited we were excited but it's a whole thing of like uh, brewers have their often have their production lineup for the next at least two years, and the hops are contracted as much. So when you're putting something new in, it has the brewers have to wait them for the, they're waiting as well. Hey, how can I fit this new variety in? And so you can basically it's like hey, you have developmental time for the hop breeding, and then the marketing time is 
as long or longer. Mm-hmm. Your goal in breeding is to reduce new varieties. Uh, and then what happens with that? You know, the HBC then licenses the, the, that right to grow or, uh, you know, to out to the, some of the individual farms. Right. So, uh, you know, the, the HBC owns the, owns the variety as a, as a company and then licenses the Yakima Chief Group and then John I. Haas to then be the kind of the outlet to the market. And mm-hmm. each of those groups have their own growers that they work with. Right. So then they'll go out and license growers to grow it. So it's a pretty great system in that you have two of the, uh, you know, that you got very good uh, coverage with regard to brewers, um, you know, and across the globe in terms of the two markets, you know, the markets that they serve. Yeah. Uh, so we've got great coverage uh, in that regard, but then also, uh, you know, basically nearly 100% of the, of the U S hop crop, you know, in terms of the growers is covered by that, that as well. So, um, great accessibility of varieties to to growers across the spectrum, as well as a great accessibility to brewers across the spectrum. So works pretty well. Sure. Sure. Well, let's dig in and talk about what that process looks like, uh, you know, from the, you know, kind of broad, you know, crossing process down into, you know, all the various stages that you work through to get to some, you know, some final candidates. Before we do that, we all have busy lives these days and can't afford to waste a day stuck on the couch because of a few drinks the night before. Z-Biotics is the answer we've all been looking for. Z-Biotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic invented by a PhD scientist's to tackle rough mornings after drinking, give Z-Biotics a try for yourself. Go to zbiotics.com slash beer and brewing to get 15% off your first order when you use beer and brewing at checkout. Z-Biotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Also arrived mobile point of sale powers places with personality. Arrived is streamlining business operations for the makers of craft with an all-in-one solution. It was built with love by hospitality professionals. No contracts and no monthly fees make Arrived a no-brainer for your craft business. Plus, they're offering a special deal to our listeners. Get 25% off all hardware. To redeem, you must launch with Arrived before December 1st, 2022. Go to Arrived.com slash CBB to request a free customized demo. That's Arrived, A-R-R-Y-V-E-D.com forward slash CBB. A different kind of POS has arrived. So let's talk about this process. Uh, you know, where do you where do you start? What's the the start of uh, of hop breeding? And I shouldn't say there was really a start because it's just an ongoing, long standing process. You are just constantly in motion, and things are always happening. You know, but what's that kind of first stage of this of the bre- uh, breeding process? Well, the I I think the you know in, in simplest terms, the first stage is deciding what are your objectives and what are you trying to accomplish. And that's going to drive, you know, your selection of parents for crossing. Um, and then that then enter, you know, once you've made your crosses, that enters into a, 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 that vetting process. Like I said, it depends on the, you know, as they say, breeding uh, is you know, equal parts art and science, right? And so you have your, your process. It's very uh, strict and very driven. But then that process, uh, how you go through that process and the, you know, the actual which process you use is very much driven by the, the desire of the, or the, the art of the breeder. And uh, so everybody has a little bit different way of looking at things. And so, but typically you can say it's going to be a seven to 10 year process to, from the time you make that cross. And so the, the start of it is figuring out, okay, what are we trying to accomplish? What are, what are the goals of the program? 
and how do we allocate resources based upon that. Uh, you could make an argument that even though we say it's a seven to 10 year crop process, um, you know, the breeding program I'm running, for example, has actually been running since the first crosses I made because you, you never really stop with your population improvement. Right. You're just constantly moving. Then you, you, over time, you introduce new tools to help hopefully make you better and more efficient. And so I have this program that's been evolving and, and running since, you know, say 1997 when I made those first, those first sets of crosses in my career. Um, you know, and it continues to evolve. And then over time, you bring more technical expertise, you bring more technology in as it develops to help hopefully make that more efficient. Um, and then I have a kind of a specific way I go through that. And Michael has a little bit different way of looking at it and, and the way he runs through, you know, his program. It's all, but it's all very similar in terms of the vetting. I don't, you know. How do you, how do you start and make crosses? I mean, what is, what's the process of doing that look like? Yeah. I mean, a nice thing, you know, for me coming into an established program, it's been running for decades is, you know, I had a, there's a lot of data that already exists on selections that have been there for 20 years or more, you know? So the first part you're going to start at is looking at, you know, you've walked through the field at least one season or two season, like, Hey, these plants look of interest. Then you look at their data either from, you know, there's basically, I look at the look of interest. What does that mean? Well, the, the plants themselves in the field look good. Yeah. So the plants are they're producing a lot of cones. They look robust. Yeah. So basically, I, I mean, for me, I boil it down. You want a plant that just, races to the top of the wire stops and then it basically it grows lateral branches so it's basically you want as many nodes up to the top of the wire hit the top of the trellis and you kind of want it to stop around the solstice and then and then it's just like you want horizontal lateral branches and that's this all bud points that's all going to be yield so those that's like the key thing you look at from a general plant is does it that's the basic foundation right. of everything and then Behind that is cone, so cone density, cone weight. So the more dense that cone is, it's one you're going to get more mass per acre. All the I call the goodies. That's where all the oils, you know, all the the flavor compounds. So the heavier that cone is, is just you get more weight, more flavor potential, more alpha acids. <laughs> sure. So those are the kind of from a plant perspective, those are things you look at. I kind of forget where I was going with my <laughs> direction there. Uh, so, oh yeah. So you have data on those. I mean, basically you're going to have some chemistry data, basic chemistry, aroma. You're going to judge those. And if, they, if they've been in the program a while, there'll be some sensory data. Like the those hops have actually been brewed with and you're going to have some basic sensory. So, I mean, there's, uh, I look at it, you know, it's, and Basically. Haas has an experimental brewery where you do make some some brews with some of these uh, hops that are in the process. Yeah, that's a big. I, I think a biggest part of our program is on both sides of the of the JV. There's a lot of brewing resources. I mean, it's this operation at the end of the day is a brewer driven operation. We don't plant out an a, a single acre if there's not a brewer driving it. Other than alpha acid, that's something that we drive, but it's it's more clear cut. But from an aroma flavor standpoint nothing gets planted without a brewer behind it. And that's based on, uh, YCR has got a brewing program. Haas has a brewing program, sensory teams that are, it's based on beer. I think that's the sure, thing I'm sure. most yeah. proud about is like, if you come into either one of our companies showing you something, you're going to, you can rub those hops, but you're also gonna be tasting a beer, a single hot beer made with those uh, varieties. 
So you look for robust plants that uh, have good agronomics. Then you, you check up on the chemistry behind them, look at some of the sensory data. Like how many plants, you know, for, for one of these might be in the ground at any given time? It's usually for brewing for on is seven hills. I mean, that's like probably the basic first starting step for brewing. What do you mean by seven hills? Well, seven plants of a given selection. And then at that stage for brewing, there might be, Oh, how many different genotypes you think at that at that stage? Probably, I guess it depends. But every year we're advancing anywhere from twenty to fifty into an advanced stage. That that will it expand it to say like seven hills, and so then that so uh, go from of one each plant individual. So we go from one, one plant, plant to, like to seven, seven plants, mm. and then uh, from that seven plants, then we have enough material to do, you know, sensory uh, and chemistry and brewing, and that then you know, creates the, the data, uh, foundation that we select from to say, okay, yeah, this is going to move forward. And to, you know, Michael's point when he, when he was talking earlier that, uh, you know, I would say in my experience, um, you know, we select these plants, we think we've got some great aromatics, we've got all this great, uh, data, but when you brew with it, I would say about 95% of the time, everything falls apart. It, <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it's, you know, it just, it's underwhelming. Right. You know, right. Not, that what you were smelling in the hop doesn't necessarily translate into the beer. And so then, you know, that we don't have any interest in underwhelming. It's all that question about survivables, right? You know, what, what actually can make it through that, uh, you know, through mm-hmm. that whole brewing process. That's yeah. the part for me coming into this as a fruit breeder. That was like I, I'm a home brewer. I've been brewing home brewings for 20 plus years, and that's why I came to this job because it was just an opportunity to combine, uh, you know, two things: breeding and brewing. But man, I, you know, every hop I had ever brewed with had already been vetted. So like my naivety coming here is like, oh, I'm gonna smell these hops, make amazing beers. I'm like, oh, that first year was like kind of like almost like a cold sweat <laughs> sweat up, came upon me like this is gonna be way harder because in fruit breeding man like you're just on a flavor you can just pull it off and if, like if it's a hop cone you could just like it was a mini beer you could drink right <laughs> and your job there is done <laughs> that's true that fruit gives you all you need right from when you taste from it a right flavor. at that point yeah. the, that hop you know you're not yeah you don't want to chew that hop no so yeah every when the flavor, I mean, that's, you would have to spend any hop you're going to brew. Uh, that's two weeks of, there's some kind of work as you well know is brew on the brewing yeah. side, like it's t- two weeks about the minimum you can crank out even a rough beer, right? Sure. sure. So that's pretty, uh, from a terms of breedings, especially for a large company like this, I mean, it's all about sample size. There's a lot of like, that's yeah dictates a lot. So, you know, right there. If every hop's going to take two weeks to evaluate, that's going to be your bottleneck from a flavor perspective. Sure, sure. Let me back up a little bit further. So when you make a cross, you know, you're putting two parent plants together, obviously a male and a female, and the goal is to create seeds. And as we all know, like the, you know, those seeds that you make are also pretty, you know, vastly, can be vastly genetically different. Not every kid's the same, right? You know, and so then you end up, you know, with this cross and a whole bunch of these seeds and then, you know, what do you what do you do from that seed point at that point? Well, at that point, you know, it, we'll collect the seed, you know, and you're selecting your parents based upon, like I said, your objectives. And then parent selection isn't just a shot in the dark. Um, we'll certainly take luck any day of the week, but you know, it's really driven by uh, the you know the knowledge you have on the the genetic 
background of those plants and the combining ability of, of, of those plants and, and what contribution they can make. From there, uh, as you've alluded to, you have your seeds and each one is genetically distinct. So they're all brothers and sisters, hops being dioecious. So we plant those out into a, a, a high density planting that allows us to, you know, vet a lot of plants in one year and try to get Just little pots or something like that. Well, they're, they're, they're started out. Yeah. in little, in little pots, um, either, either little plugs or four inch pots. Uh, and then we plant them out in the, in that nursery and allow them to grow. Um, and they'll actually flower that first year so we can get a kind of a first evaluation. And it's, it's, a it's a How fair many seeds will, you know, parents generally create. Oh, uh, it really depends. I mean, we'll, you know, depending on the, the cross so you could you could you know cross against a whole plant and you could end up with tens of thousands of seeds literally or you can cross a single side arm and end up with you know a hundred seeds so or less and so it just depends on oh, your a single oh so if you see a particular branch of the hop that's where you might uh well yeah it just kind of depends on what you're doing you know like when i, I have, have seen these as we're driving around with little bags just kind of around a portion of the plant uh, right. you know where you guys are working on yep yeah, yeah. The traditional view of it, like when I was getting first getting started, was the, you know the bread bag. You just take a bread bag and cover a sidearm, and uh, that's what you know you would cross. We've kind of moved on to larger bags. Yeah, you know, it looks like a giant candy wrapper basically across a big section of the of the string um, that covers a lot more, and then we'll blow the pollen into that. And that's you know that that by bagging it like that, you're just isolating those 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 flowers basically keeping you know outside pollen that might come in from from uh, being introduced and kind of mixing up the cross a little bit because you don't want everything to start making seeds right uh, right right yeah putting down potentially male plants in your fields which would be a yeah yeah that and you just want to be able to you know if you're making that controlled cross between two parents you want to make sure that's the only pollen that's in there so that you get accurate assessment of that cross because it's really the you know yeah we are looking for uh results in terms of a new variety out of each cross uh, you know uh, that's that's the goal but perhaps just as importantly um maybe not from an economic standpoint but certainly from a a driving of efforts for us uh, the the results you get from that cross in terms of what you learn from the two parents and, and and crossing those two parents and by evaluating the progeny what you learn from that really drives your efforts going forward. And it's, it's super important in terms of the efficiency of the overall program and your ability to take advantage of, of your variation that's out there. So, um, that's, that's super important. So you want to make sure you're keeping that as, uh, you know, uh, cut off from other pollen as much as possible. So that's the idea behind the bagging. Otherwise we could just go out there and start blowing right. pollen around. Right. So then you, they, they produce seeds, you gather those seeds, then you, you, you plant these seeds. What's, what's that next process of evaluation look like? Well, that's where we look you at you end up with now a bunch of, like a whole bunch of small plants. Right, right. So we grow, like I said, we grow those out on that, that high density nursery. And that's where we, you know, that kind of first look of evaluation. And, and there's different approaches to that. And that's where uh, uh, a lot of the power of our program comes in where we have the two different kind of approaches to it and you know whereas I focus in more on a, a negative selection and culling out that first stage Michael does a little more positive selection at that stage so it, it's two different approaches and both work really well and so uh, it just kind of depends on, on what you're trying to to accomplish what so. does that mean Michael uh really just on that first year when you have your hybrid seedlings is uh putting more looking for positive attributes whether it be aroma or alpha acid or just the plant 
it's trying to move those in a little faster just so you can get a better look for uh, kind of you can save a few years while you're you're also still having the it's it's just kind of a, a good hedge. We have our our single hill, and it, that's a more realistic view on a high trellis, and you can view the plant. And this other subset just kind of gets things. The positive selection allows you to move things in a little faster from just from a population standpoint, so you can get a little quicker view on them. And uh, it's just more. I think it's based up more on a population. There's certain things that you're just trying to move through a little quicker so you can be like, hey, I want to see the potential of this a little sooner so I can cross onto it for a bit. And sure. How's that vary from what's negative selection by contrast? Well, negative selection, you'd be looking at just the negative. So instead of looking for those positive attributes like, oh, this plant yields really well or it looks like it's going to yield really well or it's got, you know, a great aromatic, you'd be looking for, oh, this one's got powdery mildew or this one has got a, you know, I don't like the cone type or you know, or you might say it's, we know it's not going to yield well because it doesn't even have the vigor to, to reach the wire or something along those lines, mm-hmm. you know, very simple, very simple look at it to say, okay, yeah, we know this isn't going to perform. So let's get rid of it. Yeah. So the con- it's a, con- a concept that we just call it fail fast. You know, we <laughs> sure, know, sure. we know 99.9% of them are going to fail. So why not make, make them fail fast? You know, do I, you uh, specifically subject them to stressors? Do you look at the like do genetic sequencing to understand if they have genes that do certain things? Like what is what how, how does what qualifies something to fail? Well, in terms of introducing stressors, um, we've you know we have in the past we introduced a disease screening, say like in the greenhouse or. I, I, Personal, my personal feeling is that Mother Nature does a good enough job. If you put them out in the plot, Mother Nature is yeah. going to do a good enough job of subjecting the proper stressors, and we can move them forward. If you, uh, I've found that if you you artificially introduce those stressors, oftentimes it's it's too much, and you're actually getting rid of things that maybe you shouldn't. Um, and then you key in on a good point, you know, in terms of the underlying genetics that are driving that, um, and looking at ways to to take a little bit more of an unbiased look at that just through the molecular analysis. And that increasingly, yes, we are relying on that more and more as we under, you know, as we gain an understanding to help us in that selection process. But at the end of the day, um, you know, most of the selection is still driven by the breeder's efforts and, and whether it be positive or negative selection, whatever you want to call it. So how, then you, you either through positive or negative selection go from these tiny seedlings into something that you want to go plant into the ground how, like you how many seedlings would you have and then how, do, how many then get it you mentioned maybe 20 to 50 ultimately then get planted from that oh actually no from that it'll so we'll we'll go uh um like i said like michael was saying there's kind of a couple different approaches so if we're going the, the we got the two parallel routes so if, uh if we go straight from the seedlings to single hill then you're looking at uh, we might start with anywhere from what twenty five to fifty thousand seeds at the, at the start. Yeah, and that's different genotypes, and then we get those planted out. And let's say there's twenty five thousand that get planted out at the the seedling nursery after germination and everything else. Um, we might carry you know three to four thousand of those on to the single hill, um, and then the other parallel to that is uh, the fast track program where uh, that Michael was talking about that. Uh, what, what, what's Maybe your 1%. Yeah, 1% of those would move on to, to that program. 150, 200 yeah. maybe. Yeah. And um, I think we're 
you know, and, and from the single hill stage, then it enters into that kind of that, you know, that, uh, from that point about a right. nine year pipeline we're we're three years at single hill. And then after that single out of those, out of those, like, you know, three to 4,000, that's where we might select another 20 to 50 on top of the fast track to go on to, you know, a, a, a yield trial stage or a seven hill stage, what, what we call advanced lines. Um, I'm just trying to think about the mechanics of keeping track of three or 4,000 single plants out in a field and then kind of measuring and walking through that. I mean, are they, they kind of grouped or, or tracked or, or does that also then become a kind of fast fail program where you can very quickly see if something's just not growing? Now, of course, you're also talking about year to year variations in, in climate and growing conditions and also all sorts of other, you know, things that can potentially impact that too, you know, um, but, but how do you, how do you manage through that kind of massive uh, data collection process? Well, I think it, the key is to kind of simplify it, right? Yeah. Because I think you, you know, you, you can, you can make a decision in a split second on whether or not a plant is attractive yeah. or not. Yeah. You know, it, it visually, you know, we're faster than probably any computer in just terms of just walking, <laughs> sure, sure. walking and looking at a plant and just saying, okay, yeah, this one's interesting or this one's not. And so that's going to be your first. So even if we have four thousand plants planted out of those four thousand you might only harvest and sample 200. Yeah. You know, and, and so it's, it's not as, uh, vast the numbers as, you know, I mean, the numbers are big yeah. and that's key because num breeding is a numbers game. No matter what approach you use, breeding is a numbers game and everything follows, you know, a bell curve, particularly on the complex traits. So you're always looking for the tail ends of that bell curve, whether on either end. And so, why? Why? Why are the tail well, ends of those bell uh, curves let's, interesting? Let's use uh, let's use alpha for example, or just yield. Let's just use yield. That's the simplest. So, you know, most of your population, you're going to have your really low yielding ones. There's a few that fall into that, and then as you get uh, as you go here, there's kind of this middle ground here where most of your selections will fall. And let's just say that's your minimally commercially acceptable yield, you know, and, and so you're not you're not really selecting there. Right. What you're most interested in is these ones, this bucket over here. That's, you know, one or, one, or, yield, yeah, yeah. one or two standard deviations above the mean to where, you know, you're, that's where you're going to be selecting if you're looking for high yield. And so it's, it becomes, if you're looking for yield specifically, if you're walking that plot, it becomes pretty easy to just say, you know, yes, 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 or no, 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 you know, then boom, right. yes, yeah, that one's definitely, after you do this for over time, it becomes pretty quick to pick out the high yielders. So that's really, you know, what you're, you try to simplify it in that regard. You got your first kind of blush vetting that you do that says, okay, we know that 99% of this is no good. So let's only focus in on the right. stuff that we No matter know. how good it might smell or, you know, it's just not, you, if, it definitely, doesn't, if it doesn't yield, it's not going to be useful as a crop. I, I, I see what you'd say about that, but yeah. I, it, it becomes really tempting. You start smelling enough of them and, you know, I've had to resist that temptation in the past to move stuff along that you're like, wow. This is really good. But, yeah. yeah. I, I was thinking, you know, kind of taking a step back too, is that everything we do when you're, it's a, it's a huge program and you're trying to satisfy two of the largest hop companies. So, I mean, it's a big program, you know, we're running, we combined 200 crosses a year. You're running 20,000 seedlings. It, it requires a good labor crew. I mean, so, I mean, there's people that have to go collect pollen from these males. I mean, it takes, it's a combined you know, we have a pretty good sized, probably 10 dedicated people in addition to us that are going out there who have to care. I always like to kind of boil it down to the people that are working this thing have to care 
because it's so detail oriented. Like you have to correct the, the pollen from this male because there's a plan behind it. Yeah. Because otherwise we're flying, you know, we have these big lofty plans, but there's a lot of little steps that have to be executed. Like, yeah, you put the pollen on that female, then you collected that one seed, put it in the right cell. And then that goes, there's a whole handoff. There's a handoff, handoff, handoff. So you have all these lofty plans, whether it's, you know, you know, you, I always say molecular. Molecular is always the thing everybody likes to talk about because it's like the cutting edge of science. Like it's all based on traditional process and data that made the model. Mm-hmm. So if you're it's just a classic garbage in, garbage out. So I, mean, I think for us, it's just like you have to care. You have to have good processes and you got to be out there in the field, do, you know. Yeah, that's a good point. It, it's a highly disciplined process and the, the crew that executes on it, which goes well beyond Michael and I, are they're the discipline in that. You know, they're the ones that run that process and it's it's a it's how, how big are each of the teams that, that pull pull this off? On our side it's uh probably five. Yeah. Five to six yeah, people. we're about the same. Yeah. So there's about five, six core people, you know, mm-hmm. that are working on breeding per company year round. And then of course you have your seasonal stuff, but then and then you got your you know, your support teams from the farms that help manage the plots and, and right. make sure that gets done right. So it it's a it's a pretty large and concerted effort at the end of the day when you start pulling all that in. Sure, sure. So you go from you've got all you know, three or four thousand single hills and from there you weed that down to the next step, the advancement mm-hmm. or the advanced program where they they move up to about seven hills. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what happens at that stage? Well, that stage, that's where we've got, again, the two parallel programs. So the, the stuff that we moved into fast track actually will cut out the single hill. So they're, they're reaching that seven hill stage early. And then the seven hill stage of stuff that came out of the single hill, that's where we can really start focusing in on the um, more of a robust sensory analysis, uh, the more robust chemistry, and then, of course, the brewing uh, with, with the hops and uh, to see how, how they're going to perform in that regard. Um, yeah, yield at that first when you get the seven hill, it's just a nice size to get good yield data. See the plants, you get ten to maybe twenty pounds of hops to brew with, and we can. Some of our most focused customers that we send samples out of there to for them to trial on their pilot breweries, and so I think to me the seven hills were that really really get serious. Yeah. And at any, any given time, you're running a couple hundred of, of these seven hill plots. I think that's a fair number. I mean, it, it varies, but yeah, I mean, we've got you know from from the traditional process, you know, you're going to have at least three years worth of those there in that in that stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, you, you know, on top of that, we've got fast track, and I don't know how many years you you tend to try to look at those there, but like three and ten, yeah. at least three for anything for yeah. me. Yeah, and, and then, you know, the, the, we say three years, but really three years is difficult to, to get all the assessment done. Uh, you know, for something as subjective as aroma and flavor, it's tough to say after three years that you've done everything you can to make sure that they're either going to succeed or fail. So I think there's a, quite, there's, a, there's a contingent that stick around for quite a bit longer than that mm-hmm. just because we, you know, we want to make sure we give them the, the opportunity to, to truly succeed or, or ultimately fail. 
sometimes you guys develop some favorites in there that uh, you're not quite sure, you're not quite ready to let them go. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that's fair. <laughs> I, th- I mean, it's sinking. I mean, there's kind of three components that to me have been the most challenging moving into hops. One is the flavor aspect I talked about. Males that you know that the male component's huge, and then uh, talking about this uh, three years, you know, the, the time it takes to evaluate something confidently is because you always uh, that first year is always a baby year. So hops it your best when you first transplant. Like hey, you see it in a single hill, and you move it to a seven hill. Well, you have that immature year, that juvenile year, which is yeah, you can evaluate it, but you can't be confident on it. So that always slows you down because you're always doing this scale-up process like, hey, I, w- I have one seven hill. I like it. Now I want to see it on a bigger scale. And so that next year, that next larger scale is going to be a baby. So then you, in a sense, lose. You're always a, a step behind because of yeah. how hops develop that way. So that, that's – and breeding is all about time. Like you're always – if you're in a competitive environment, ways – if you're – you have to move fast if you're in a highly competitive environment. And so those things, uh, there's only so many gears and levers you have. Like the plant's just like going to like put a hard, there's just things you cannot change. And that sure. is one that you cannot <laughs> change in hops. Right, right. So you you then brew with some of these, uh, you know, in the, in this, at the seven hill stage or send some of those, you know, 10 or 20 pound samples out to, some brewers, uh, you know, who you trust or, you know, how do you, how does that decision-making process go? And, uh, you know, how organized is that? Uh, you know, it sounds like there's more of a, you know, I mean, is there a, you know, a pure direction? You have a very organized, we're going to brew with all of these and test all of them or, uh, you know, or how do you make some decisions about what and who gets to brew with which? Well, internally, it's definitely easier because we're just looking at the internal brews that we do, I like the when I use the Haas Brewery, it's stuff that I'm interested from a purely breeding perspective, really. Mm-hmm. It'll be probably two-thirds will be just stuff I'm looking at from a pedigree and historical perspective. A third might be like, hey, these have meet all the marks on yield. And so the agronomics and the brewing components are there. And so those are just – those are pretty easy to put through. If I luckily have those resources to draw upon, and we just do a pretty simple – uh, we've refined it over the years, but we've pretty much boiled it down to, it's just a base bittered beer, you know, just pale malt. We'll bitter it with like a neutral extract to get like 30 BUs. Mm-hmm. And then we just pull that off and we can run around. Basically you dry hop during active at late primary. And so then you can do pretty high throughput look at it and screen it on an IPA basis where you're like two pounds a barrel late primary so you can run those through so ipa becomes the the baseline that everything gets evaluated on now and for me i mean that's because if you don't get flavor out of a hop in, a, in an ipa dry hop basis it's sure. just not there and that's fine if we don't see it to me those are the ones like hey you're gonna look more just like a subtle style like loggers you know hops that might just be workhorse pale ale hops and if they have at that point if they don't have that big punch on like if you're doing a two pound per barrel rate and you're not getting some of the punches you in the mouth, like, Hey, then it's going to have to be extremely, you're going to be relying on agronomics, like high yield, because it's not going to be an exciting, sexy flavor space. So the value is going to be on 
it's going to have to have good yeah. yield. <laughs> yeah, the IPA base just gives you kind of that idea of contribution, right? I mean, if something, you know, we're not, you know, we don't want to be just focused on IPA style sure, hops. Sure. I mean, obviously there's a focus on the more traditional continental, you know, aromatic. Um, but that, that IPA gives you kind of that first blush, uh, relatively easy process to, to evaluate by, you know, right. versus going out and, you know, kicking out tons of loggers with these things, trying to figure out what, you know, what, what, what right, the contribution right. is. So, and you can, you know, big brew a bigger base brew and then just dry hop a, a bunch of these in separate kinds of ways yeah. and have a, a consistent baseline across all of those yeah. that you can just, you know, measure and evaluate against. Yeah. And I can't, you know, not, I won't speak for Michael, but I think for the most part, if we, you can smell a hop out in the field that you can go, yeah, I think this would fit really well in that, that lager style or mm-hmm. that, you know, that noble category. Um, there's just kind of a, an aromatic yeah. you get that you can smell right away out in the field. And um, so we can classify them and then maybe even yeah. run a separate set of yeah. trials as well. So it's not all just, you know, so, so and you all are developing, you know, American noble, you know, style hops. I know there's, you know, we've written about some of those, mm-hmm. you know, also ourselves. Um, and so, right. It's not, not solely IPA focused. And I think that goes back and speaks to what you talk about at the very front end that, uh, you, know, you set your goals for the mm-hmm. program. And, you know, if the goal is a new IPA hop, which probably makes sense that that's a big goal. That's high in demand for mm-hmm. brewers, you know, but also American noble style hops can, uh, you know, be a, a, another goal that you all are, are following. Are there any other goals that uh, you tend to outline from that that first step? Um, well, I think you know we tend to you just look at the the opportunities that are out there. Um, obviously, both programs were originally developed around alpha. Yeah, you know, building efficiency into the alpha supply chain, and a lot of the success we've we've had has kind of fallen out of that effort, and and actually then shifted kind of our focus over towards aroma. But mm. but certainly alpha is still a component of that. Right. And if you're looking across the industry in terms of acreage, still a large volume of acreage of Cascade and Centennial, and um, you know, there's a large demand for these noble types. So yeah, there's these definite opportunities in that, in that regard that will never go away. Um, so we're certainly always looking at those. And then, uh, you know, in terms of flavor and aroma, uh, and, and the IPA space, I think from my standpoint, adding, uh, you know, value in terms of new flavors and aromas, uh, things that maybe we haven't seen before is, is certainly exciting. Will those hops ever come in and be the bit next big Citra or Mosaic or Simcoe and displace all those acres? No, to me, it doesn't need to happen though for a variety to be successful i think if you can just provide uh, a value through through, you know new flavors and aromatics to allow brewers to you know further expand their 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 uh their products i think that's that's important as well sure so you have you've got a few hundred of these seven hill you know plots now what's the next step in the development process after that? You know, you've, you here and there, you, you all are brewing with them. Sometimes an outside brewer friend might brew with a little bit of that, you know, where does it go from there? Where, where has the next selection get made? Well, their first step would be replication. So you expand it, just looking at a, a more replication to get a better view on its agronomics. And it's, you always want to keep brewing consistency. That's always a component too. 
and it's on both farms. So things go both on Hawes and Yakima Chief ranches that we're both that we're covering the geographic areas. So we're not getting a blind spot there as we get more serious on something. What does that mean? Basically, that we have. You guys aren't that far apart here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not like, or are you growing some up in Moxie also? Yeah. I mean, it's, that's always the thing uh, to be, you know, mindful. Like I always see it in our test plots. I, there's just certain sections of the fields. I know there's a ton of rocks and, huh. you know, so you always, you always have to give uh, some leeway on the good and bad because there's just the soil it could be in is, and that's just kind of number one thing in, in, plant sciences you always have to do a lot of reps across different different soils yeah and we, you know, i think the you know the the key here is that we have access to the resources so if if we get serious about something and we want to see how it performs in different areas you know we've each got a network of however many growers we can work with to get small plots planted and so we at that point we might start you know even planting into to other regions like Oregon or, or others, mm-hmm. you know, and so we can at least begin that assessment process to see uh, whether this, you know, new variety has good general adaptability to the to the entire region, or is it very specific to, to just here? Obviously, you prefer general adaptability across the entire region, so that's where we'll, we'll work within our, our grower networks to begin that process of expanding that out and seeing how well it does uh, once it's proven itself to a certain point. So how many plants then go from that seven hill stage up to this next, uh, you know, test plots in multiple spots? No, it's very few. I mean, most years, none, you know, none. Uh, yeah, none. you know, I'd say every, you know, like this last year we expanded a few, but even those, I don't know that we'll go into like a full one acre trial into different locations. They might just go into an expanded yield trial. Hmm. Um, but it's, it's actually fairly rare for things to make it into that, to that stage. Let's say on average, maybe if you average it across years, maybe one to two a year. Yeah. That's highly, that, highly that, selective. Does that process. seem about right? Yeah, yeah. I'd say one or two come out each year that you're interested at. And then if you talk about truly special things, once every five to seven years. Yeah. Yeah. So well, if you look at our pure seedling numbers, I mean, that's maybe one out of, 80,000. <laughs> yeah. It's incredibly so. low, low success rate. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that funnel, uh, really, really gets narrow there at the end. And, and yeah, you know, so then you, you come up with this process, you start with that one every other year or so, you know, you, you, you start plotting out, uh, you know, more growth and, and testing this in different kinds of regions. That's still not a guarantee that that hop will ever make it to market, get a name and become something that, uh, is then sold routinely to brewers. Right. I mean, for me, the most frustrating thing right now is it's it's very easy to get an I, a really impressive IPA hop, IPA hop to get traction on it. Uh, I mean, we we do set like baseline minimum yield thresholds that we want to raise the bar where it used to be for like we're not going to show something to brewers anymore unless it meets a, a responsible yield level, both responsible for the farm you know, the environment, just supply chain. But the thing that I think for me, just in my short time here, and Jason, probably more for you, is that we have these hops that are, yeah, they're not wow, but they're very nice hops, and they yield incredibly better. You know, so like twice, say, Cascade, in the realm of Cascade flavor, but the yield is twice. and But they're much harder to sell 
you know, you're going to you're going to come for for each of our companies. You're going to taste this IPA hop that will blow your head off. I'm like, hey, here's this Cascade hop, and just getting that focus. It's a, I think that for the whole industry, we want to do it as breeders and farmers. I think it's getting brewers engaged. Like, hey, start looking at the hops you're growing, and both from a supply chain risk and a cost, like, and and it's sustainability, environmental. There's needs to be a look at that because it's not a small like centennial you know that what that impact is on that is not small <laughs> and it's just tough for us brewers have to be have to we can't do it alone we have to have brewers who want to go down that road with us mm-hmm. if, I'm, yeah. if i'm hearing you right what you're saying is that there are some of these varieties that brewers may lean on that you all are also trying to develop better more agronomically suitable versions of that can kind of fill that same role, but do it in a way that's better for the farmers, better for the environment, maybe uses less irrigation or less pesticides, reduces the carbon footprint as a result of doing that. Nobles, you know, noble hops are a great example. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you look at those categories that I outlined earlier, you know, if you could, I mean, Cascade's kind of its own category, right? Cascade Centennial is kind of its own category. And then you have the noble hops. Um, Those are, great targets for us as breeders and something that we, you know, for years have keyed on. In fact, uh, when I first started in my career, uh, I had a couple different of my mentor old school breeders as I was focusing in on aromatics, tell me, why are you focused on aromatics? It's aromas, you know, it's too challenging. It's dead. You'll never, you'll never find success in that because those are so entrenched, you know, and it's so difficult to get brewers to switch um, over from those. That, yeah, it's, it's a real challenge, but it's a huge opportunity from a, you know, just look at it from a sustainability standpoint. You know, if we could get a switch over to some of these higher yielding uh, complements or alternatives to those varieties, that's, that could be big. You know, I, and I think you're right. And it's actually strangely something that uh, uh, we were talking about with Stan Hieronymus last week, because I know he's, he's been uh, beating the drum on sustainability, especially as new data comes out just about. Uh, how impactful specific varieties, specific, you know, like certain hops are, are far less sustainable or have a much larger carbon footprint, whether again, it's, it's due to pesticide necessity or, you know, some other, uh, or fertilization, you know, fertilizer also, you know, consumes, a, uh, you know, as, as a increases the carbon footprint. So if you can reduce some of those necess- necessary inputs, then, uh, you can certainly improve the overall environmental prospect for a certain hop. And it's something that uh, brewers may not have paid as much attention to before, but some of the the more environmentally focused breweries have started to define, look at that and in a more significant way and understand that there really is, you know, some footprint there that they can uh, reduce by focusing on on hop variety, which again, you know, it's, it's not something that people have really considered much about in the past. Right. So you, you send some of the, you start making some plots, uh, you know, what, what's the, what's the next step after that? If we're, uh, for something that starts to hit and I mean, you've maybe got what a few of these then going at any given time, um, you know, of those tests where, how many might be going? Cause those will be multi-year tests. I assume also then. Uh, yeah. At the elite stage. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's what we call the elite stage. The elite and, stage. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, and it, it varies. I mean, maybe you say half a dozen to a dozen, depending on the the the, in the year. Um, it might be running at any given time, and really at that stage, it's just about confirming that performance, uh, both at the grower level and the brewer level, and uh, and then kind of 
whittling it down to that decision of, you know, is this commercially viable? Is this something that will have legs and take off? And generally speaking, that takes all the input, you know, the entire input from all the years of evaluation, but then also takes a, a lot of times a good champion in the brewing industry to, to help carry that over the finish line. What do you mean champion? What are you looking for for that? A partner brewer that says, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll take a risk on this. We'll, we'll partner with you on getting some beers made and, and, uh, and then, um, you know, really confirm that, that performance for you. What do they have to do to champion that? Do you mean, are, are they uh, guaranteeing a certain amount to, you know, to purchase or uh, what does that look like? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, we'll work with them. We, you know, we'll call it sponsorships or call it whatever you will. Right. You know, we'll partner up on a plot. And uh, uh, oftentimes that's kind of the determining factor on whether or not something, you know, performs uh, at two expectations or not. And it's pretty, usually pretty good feedback once you get it back from the feedback from the brewers that say, yeah, this just didn't you know, do anything for us or, or, uh, yeah, this, this is really awesome. This is performing great. Um, so I, th- that can and be these are, these feedback. are the elite stage or the numbered hops that, uh, that we see now and, and, you know, the brewers are brewing with, right. Right. So like what well, we were cutting down where well, we picked here on Friday with the single hill folks that were grabbed out here of, uh, for the Kilman 586 is one of those in the elite stage or mm-hmm. 10, 10, 19 that we got from, Michael over at Haas on Friday. Those are those would be elite stage hops then. Right. What takes something from there over the final finish line of getting a name and being uh, you know becoming part of the you know the official uh, lineup and and you know expanded sales program through uh, through all the companies. I mean, it almost gets taken off your plate at that point and, uh, you know, becomes a broader business decision for, for lots of folks involved, huh? Yeah, in a lot of ways, from a breeder, purely breeder standpoint, hopefully we've done our job and it's been, you know, vetted and successful for in all ways that we've measured. And then, yeah, it, it kind of falls into uh, a sales and marketing realm at that point. I think the naming point, we still do it primarily because it's it still signals to the brewing industry that we're serious this has legs it's gonna it's something you can plan beers around for the long term versus I, there's still some skittishness of on brewers if it's a number is it going to be around for five years or is it just but i mean that that's really if we're keeping it if we have brewer interest it's working on the farm it's going to continue like 586 has just continued to grow since we first showed it mm-hmm. six years ago and there's others, I mean, there's other varieties, numbers in the 630s, another one that's continued to grow. 630, 638, uh, 472, these are all varieties that still exist. All the numbers still have a, a following, and they're just kind of, uh, you know, finding their place, you know, and then every once in a while one will rise to the top and really start to shine. 586 is a good example of that. So, How many acres of 586 are being grown right around now? I mean, do you know off the top of your head? Oh, off the top of my head, I think it must be about 150 or something Somewhere like that. Like, yeah. yeah. Are there any other kind of, you know, broader challenges or, uh, a, uh, you know, pieces of the, the hot breeding process that uh, um, you find either uh, particularly difficult or uh, particularly rewarding? Hmm. That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I don't think all crops have their challenges. I think uh, in brewing... It's a it's a kind of double-edged sword. You have to be super focused because even if you have something really good to get it off the ground, it's really difficult. And so you kind of want to – you 
you should focus on the varieties that are special, but you also have to keep your options open because there's such diversity of what brewers are looking for. I think that's our challenge. It's, it's like a blessing and a curse that so we want to offer variety, but it's also, it's hard to rein it. You know, it's, I'd say it's tough to rein in where you should focus sometimes. And it's like Wayne Gretzky. You got to skate to where the puck's going to be, not where it is. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that along those lines, you know, I, I find it even this far into my career, I find it very exciting how much we continue to learn. And so, you know, even after uh, 25 years of doing this, we're still finding opportunities. You know, the puck's still all over the damn place, you know. And so it, we're, we're still finding those opportunities to, to expand uh, uh, selection and, and select for different different things. So it's not just a, as simple as, oh, this smells great, this makes great beer. We're learning more about the compounds and how they interact in beer and how we could take advantage of that. We're learning more about the genetics that are underlying that. And so we're, with this knowledge base, we, we, we now know more than we ever did about what's driving all that, but it's also pointing out we know so little. And so I, I think that's, that's what's exciting to me is the, the fact that you're working with this, you know, kind of a metabolic powerhouse in terms of a plant, and there's a lot that can happen there that we still haven't tapped, I think. And uh, that's, that's the exciting part. So there's a whole open field in front of us in terms of, uh, really taking advantage of that and, and, and expanding on that, you know, so I think that's exciting. I think that's an interesting point, uh, you know, that the more you learn, the more you learn what you don't know yet mm-hmm. and uh, opens up new avenues for, for even further exploration. Right, right. Well, that seems like a great place to bring this to a close. AccuBrew is an analytical tool designed to collect and compare the information brewers need to produce consistent results. Get funky with Fermentus Safe Brew BR8, the first dry Britannomyces bruxellensis culture available to brewers. Z-Biotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking and get 25% off all arrived hardware when you launch with arrived before December 1st. 2022. Also want to throw out some thanks to Yakima Valley Tourism, who has made this trip possible for us here at Craft Beer and Brewing. Uh, go to visit yakima.com to start planning your own trip. Highly encourage everyone who listens to this podcast and who loves beer and loves the art of brewing. Uh, they, you got to come out to Yakima. You've got to see it happen in person. And there's something special and a beautiful energy, especially at this time of year with harvest, that uh, that everyone owes it to themselves to experience. Um, Michael, if people want to learn more about Haas, where do they find uh, more information about what you all are doing? I guess our website, of course, johnihaas.com. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, Jason, if people want to learn more about uh, what you're doing, where do they find you guys? Yeah, both the, the Yakima Chief Ranch's website, Yakima Chief Hop's website, yeah, for sure. Cool. And Hop Breeding Corporation, do they have your own actually, uh, presence for that we too? We do have a website as well. I guess we should mention that, hopbreedingcompany.com. Yeah. Probably hasn't been updated in a while. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> probably needs an update. But Well, I'm excited. I know brewers are excited to see what you all come up with next because uh, the world of beer today uh, wouldn't be what it is with that. I mean, and it's really not overstating it to say that some of the varieties of hops that you all have produced have made this current uh, world of craft beer, what we've seen now in terms of possibility of flavor in, in the world of craft beer, um, that growth has been predicated on the existence of hops that help drive that kind of flavor. Um, you know, and so the growth of 
craft brewers has to go hand in hand with uh, the development of these great hop varieties. You can't have one without the other. Absolutely crucial to this world of craft beer that we're in. So thank you all for the great work that you all are doing. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Appreciate it. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.